All right. I beat the video up to the front. Praise the Lord. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. More importantly, I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And I want to start by bragging on y'all as a church. Last week, we had our campus Sunday service and also the big church party that followed. And what I saw in and around that event from some of our staff, especially Alyssa. Can you raise your hand, Alyssa? I, I picked on her while she was getting coffee. And Raquel, Alyssa and Raquel, if you see them, then give them a big hug, a hug and thank them because, uh, oh, there she is. Our, our website, y'all go to thespringstx.org. She just put in a lot of her extra time into clarifying who we are better on our website. And in and around, yes, last, yeah, you can give her a hand. What I saw from all of our members last week was so amazing. When I saw everyone chipping in and participating and having fun, so much peace, so much joy, it made me think that y'all are so much like a church. You are a church. That's the highest compliment I can give you. Praise God. We are a church. And also we received an offering for our campus missionaries. And we received more than enough for all four of our campus missionaries to have their uh, expenses paid for our upcoming retreat. So, big time. Now, as you saw in that amazing video that Raquel did, today we're starting a seven-week series, preaching series called The Remnant. In any generation in world history, and not just our own, men and women have battled anxiety in large part due to a limited view of God's redemptive hand in the world. It's not that God's not doing anything. It's more that we don't see all that he's doing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong is when we walk by sight, or by limited sight, instead of walking by faith. So as we study Romans 9 through 11 this fall, we'll see more clearly that God always preserves a remnant, a people for himself. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor the reading of God's word. We're in Romans 9, verses 1 through 18. Big time. It's a lot of verses. Hope you ate breakfast. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were, neither, they were not yet born and had neither done good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever whoever he wills. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear your word and your words. Open our eyes to see your glory. And all of that's beyond our own capacities anyway. So open our hearts, enlarge our hearts to receive you. Amen. As our elders approached this fall season, we were faced with a tough decision. Either with the new season, we start a brand new preaching series and a different topic or book. Or we start the fall by going back into Romans where we left off this summer. And going right into Romans 9, tackling some of the hardest and most difficult verses in all of the Bible. And based on the decision that we were led to make, evidently, the Holy Spirit has a high view of you and your capacity to process deep truth, because we're going to stay in Romans. Amen? Often the most difficult parts of Scripture are what show the most glorious attributes of our good and glorious God, and what give you power to unlock some of the most potent moments of revival in you and from you. And as your pastor and more as your brother, I appeal to you yet again for like the fifth time this year. Seek understanding. But let the roots of your trust in a good God sink down deeper than the roots of your intellectual understanding. I appeal to your soul. This is very important. So I'm going to declare one big idea that's going to kind of navigate how I teach through our passage. But after I declare it, I'm going to show you as clearly as I can, and with God's help even better than that, how his word in this passage, in these 18 verses, 
underline this truth and this idea way more powerfully. So here's the big idea. Here it goes. The Heavenly Father freely chooses to bestow life on some that were once dead. Now, as I said, I'm going to show you how our passage, more importantly, declares this truth. And I want to start with the last few words of our sentence and actually the last few words of our passage because they provide a framework for understanding the rest of the story. Again, the Heavenly Father freely chooses to bestow life on some that were once dead. We're once dead. Ephesians 2 declares, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. That's the framework, the baseline that we approach God with. We need to understand this. If we, if we move on to trying to understanding and applying everything else without nailing this down, we will run ahead and assume all the wrong things that we think we deserve from God and judge God for all the wrong things that we think he owes to us. We were dead. If you know Jesus in here, you were once dead. Spiritually. Spiritually dead, but also uh, physically suffering decay and eventual physical death. And then destined for eternal death. In fact, every single person in here, I don't even have to judge which one of us are, which is a burden, by the way, we shouldn't take upon ourselves. Everyone in here was either once dead or you're still dead, whether you know it or not. We're dead. That's the context that we approach God with. So let's go to verse 18 right out of the gate and confront this whole difficult idea and this whole difficult verse. Verse 18. Are you guys ready to do this? I think we're brave. Show me a little bravery. Give me some bravery back. I need this, all right? Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here's the tough question. Does God maliciously harden the hearts of men and women? Does he, in essence, push otherwise innocent people to harden their hearts unto corruption? If so, you could say that God is corrupt if it's him that corrupts. But that's not what this is saying. That would be reading into Scripture instead of reading Scripture. That's not what this is saying. In my opinion, I think that the state of being hardened is much like the state of being spiritually dead. So knowing this, I think that we were all once hardened. We were all once dead in our sins. Are you tracking with me there? Hardened, dead? And so the question is, did God do the death-making, the killing, the hardening? Did God do that? And the answer is yes and no. We have to go back to the beginning. God created us for life and not for death. We were created not to be hardened against God, but in tender, intimate relationship with God, whole in him. Our insecurities not plaguing us. Our false identities not being projected from us like on social media. We were created to be free. To be in tender relationship with a holy and loving and infinite father. But freedom has an alternative. Just like love has an alternative. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, you are free 
to eat of any tree in the garden. But the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the day that you eat that, you shall surely die. You see the, the, the reality of freedom and the alternative to freedom? See, they were free to love God and to obey God. But they were left with an alternative to their freedom as well. And I think that's sort of inherent in the whole idea of freedom and love and choice. If I were to tell you, hey, I really love my wife. But let's say she was the only woman on earth. I think that that sort of situation would lack the comparative choice that seems necessary for freedom and for love and for choice. You're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but on the day you eat of that tree, and we know the story, Adam and Eve chose the alternative. They rejected God's love. They rebelled against God despite his tender warning, and they traded their freedom for bondage. Turn to your neighbor and say, they traded their freedom. Now, lest you think this is ancient history, how often do we hear the tender pleadings of a loving and holy father and trade that directive for bondage in our own lives? This really is our story. And so God did what he promised with Adam and Eve. He gave them actively gave them what they wanted. He banished them from the garden away from the tree of life, disconnecting them from his life, giving them what they wished, what we wished. What is it when you disconnect from life? It's one word, death. Okay, just making sure you're tracking with me here. Away from God's tender presence, we've all died. We've become hardened to sin. And God was active in letting this play out. And this is what's hard to understand. God is not responsible for our hardening. But as we harden ourselves against God, he's active in letting us. Romans 8, last month, is the first time I asked you to let the roots of your trust sink down deeper than the roots of your understanding. Creation itself was subjected to futility. And we know this is subjected by God. As we're hardening ourselves, God gives us over to it. He hardened, in essence, the children of the rebellion. He subjected us to futility, to the bondage of our own choosing, to the death of our own desire. And even further back in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And how is the wrath revealed? Well, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. So, so here we have God giving us over to ourselves. We're responsible for the hardening, but he's also active in letting us have what we want. So back to Romans 9. In essence, God did harden sinners, but all sinners. We were all hardened And he's just in doing so. He's not responsible for our hardening. He's merely giving us over to ourselves. And the hardening is the reality of life absent from his tender mercy. So we're responsible even though he's active. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God doesn't owe us anything except judgment. We were dead. 
We weren't neutral. We were born enemies. We, weren't, we aren't innocent. We're guilty. We don't deserve any sort of chance other than what he's already given us abundantly. He doesn't even owe us an explanation. We're dead. And I, I realize this is uncomfortable, but we have to sit on this discomfort for a bit because this sobering context is what makes redemption so sweet. We're dead in our own corruption. And, and yes, by his proclamation of the consequences and the, the playing out and the, the effect of the hardening, but... But the Heavenly Father freely chooses to bestow life on some that were once dead. He didn't just give a little bit of a blessing to people who were kind of like he liked a little bit. No, we were dead. We were his enemies, and he freely chooses to bestow life. He owes us death, and he freely chooses life. Now, let's focus on that part, freely chooses God's free choice. You could call this the doctrine of sovereignty that we'll get into a little bit. God's utter freedom. I think God's utter freedom is hard to, to ponder, and, and it's not necessarily intellectual. It's volitional. It's our will. We want to believe that there's no one more free, no one more autonomous than me, right? I don't want to think that God is more free, more in, in position to express his will than me. We want to think that nothing in our existence is more powerful than my will. And we, we think like this and we disregard, you know, the weather and taxes and all sorts of things to, to live under this lie. And that's why we're uncomfortable with this doctrine. But listen, God is more free, not less free than us. That took me a long time to think about that. Boom. He's more free, and this is crucial because eventually greater freedoms will subjugate lesser freedoms. Let me illustrate this. My seven-year-old son wants to drive our car. That's his desire, and he has free will, does he not? I guess. But my desire to prohibit his desire kind of subjugates all that free will because I'm good. And I make his free will not so free. I know better than he does. Now, when we apply this to God, things get difficult unless we trust him. We have reasons to do that. We, I guess we have free will. We'd like to talk about that. But our wills are not free to the degree that God becomes enslaved to our wishes. Of course not. And besides, remember Adam and Eve? They traded their freedom for bondage. So since Adam and Eve, none of us have ever technically been free. We have will. We have choices. And we are responsible for them. But it's not really free. We have to come against that presumption in our culture last few hundred years. God has free will. He's fully free. He's unhindered by outside forces, including taxes in the government. And he commands us to pay taxes, by the way. That's another message. He's unhindered by human will. He's freely able to choose to bestow life on dead rebels. What a good God. 
In fact, speaking of God's purposes on Isaac's the lineage of our faith, before they were born, verse 11 says, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in other words, they had made no good choices or bad choices, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, remember, God's purpose, big, that's the big headline here, in order that that might continue, not because of human works, but because of him who calls. God has determined a purpose to redeem children from among the dead. From among, among us that have already hardened our hearts, he can soften them. Dead hearts he can make alive. That's the will he determines. And we have to take a break here, and I have to do my best, God, God willing, to debunk this weird idea that we kind of confuse just because God predetermines things doesn't make it determinism. Determinism. See, that's, that's kind of a philosophical straw man that people kind of draw out of the scripture. They, they kind of take their misunderstanding about this de- philosophical determinism, and they kind of bring it over to the Bible, and they take their misunderstanding ab- about the Bible, and they, they beat it up, thinking that they're dismantling the Bible. No, you're just dismantling your misunderstanding of what the Bible says. The Bible never says that. Determinism, let me explain what that is. It might, might be helpful. Uh, from my understanding, is the, the, uh, this idea, essentially, that since all the natural laws and genetics and things like that they're kind of constants that all outcomes, therefore, are predetermined and no one is responsible for their decisions since it's all going to play out anyway, right? Well, we can beat that idea up all day, but that's not what the Bible says anyway. God has predetermined his purposes, yes, but we don't know all that he knows. We're only responsible for what we know and the decisions we make. Besides, God is a personal God. He's not an impersonal constant. He doesn't create robots. He creates men and women. And he is supremely free, free to judge and free to save. And if he wants to ravage hell, redeeming his children out of death and rebellion by sending his son to die on the cross for our sin, that's his freedom of choice. Thank God. The heavenly father freely chooses to bestow life on some that were once dead. Some. Now, I realize that this is maybe the hardest word in our little sentence here. God gives life from the dead to some and not to all. Now, maybe, maybe we, we struggle with this thought, and so we, we kind of try to run away from it with, like, false conclusions about it. Now, let's be careful. Let's slow down again. And sit on this for a second. Does this mean that those he chooses are better than those he chooses to to allow to remain as they are? If you think that being chosen or being elect promotes pride or superiority, I think you're missing the point. I think it's actually the very opposite. Because thinking of yourself of having achieved salvation is what promotes pride and superiority. And by the way, it probably reveals that you don't have salvation anyway because salvation is not achieved. Salvation is achieved, but not by you. It's by Jesus. 
And anyone who thinks they achieved salvation hasn't received salvation. The doctrine of election brings sober humility. And let's back up and be clear that it's talking about none of us at the start over here in America. The sum that God chose was the nation of Israel. That's so the first whole part of our first part of our passage talks about. God chose to pour his love out freely on Abraham. And he specifically aimed his promise through Sarah, which is uniquely dignifying for women, by the way, for God's promise to be so wrapped into precious women that he also chooses from the very beginning, even ancient times when this was rare. And then through Isaac, through Sarah, Isaac, and then through Rebecca to Jacob. Now, by and large, from, from Paul's perspective, it appears that the people of Israel in Jacob's lineage had totally rejected God. And when their Savior, Jesus, came fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament, it seemed like, man, what happened? Like, didn't God say that this is going like, to be like, yay, the world's being saved? And it didn't appear to be happening that way. Don't conclude from this that the sum who God originally chose was Israel. And since they mostly rejected him, the rest of us were kind of brought in, kind of you know, fill his quota. We're like plan B. No. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Please look at me. God's purposes do not fail then, and they do not fail now. Your understanding of his purposes often fail. But God's purposes don't fail. Men and women that you would think would never fail, nations that you would think would never fail, fail. But the word of God never fails. Just because his purpose isn't clear to me, doesn't mean it's not clear. It's just not clear to me. God has always desired to bestow life from the dead through Israel and even unto the nations. It's not a New Testament idea. This is all over the Old Testament. To open up through Israel to all the nations. It was always meant to happen through a faith remnant, not through some sort of natural lineage, like some sort of royal blood lineage. It was always meant to be through faith. Check out verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And Jacob was the promised child, the sum that God would bring the promise through. And it, the promise played out different than we expected. Has that ever happened in your life? God promises you something. You wait on it for just a little bit. It seems like a long bit to you. But soon you start thinking, oh, maybe God, maybe God's not going to fulfill this promise. And time and time again, this has happened in my life, where I look back and I'm like, oh, shoot. He did fulfill the promise. It was just so different than my expectations. What failed? My expectations, not his promise. And so God promises to save the world. He brings this perfect savior into the world and he dies. Shoot, that failed for about 38 hours, it would seem as such. And then he rose from the dead. They didn't have a paradigm for this, but they had a promise for this. God's promises do not fail. 
Jacob brought forth Jesus. And through Jesus, blesses with life some from Israel and from every tribe and nation and tongue. Now, I've heard people conclude that, well, God plays favorites. You know, he chooses to bestow his life on some and chooses to let others remain dead. Well, this makes God unjust. Please again, look at me. No, God would be perfectly just if everyone remained dead. God is a loving father who personally chooses to build a family. We're not talking about like him in some sort of detached state, kind of working on projects. He's intimately engendering a lineage of sons and daughters through faith, by his grace. His paternal desire is being borne out. It's not some sort of impersonal will being expressed. And who are the some that he chooses to make his children? Are they the ones, like I've heard silly things before, like, oh, God chose the ones he knew, who knew would choose him and who are just more sincere. That's the buzzword of value in our temporary culture, sincerity. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, verse 11 and beyond, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works or sincerity, but because of him who calls. Verse 12, she was told, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, I could be wrong, but I think this means that comparatively God hated Esau compared to how he chose to pour his love out on Jacob. Again, I could be wrong about that, but we would be super wrong to conclude that God loved Jacob because Jacob was better than Esau. Go read Genesis. Jacob was not better than Esau. He was way worse. Jacob's name was Deceiver, and boy, was he faithful to his name. And God chose him, and God chose to love him. Verse 16, therefore, just gets to this perfect summary, a truth bomb of what this is all about. And if you believe this and express trust and faith in this verse, you will never be the same again. I'm not overstating this. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does God love your exertion? Does it, can he be pleased by your efforts? Yes, but he does not depend on you. Say this with me. So it depends not on human will or exertion. Verse 16 but on God who has mercy. Verse 16. Let's say that again. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I think we've said that like five times. Let's close our eyes and say it again. We've memorized it. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now preach that to yourself when you start doubting God in a hard moment. You're not better. You're not more sincere. You're just so infinitely loved and chosen for such a time as this. And watch out. 
this same truth of verse 16 that humbles you here has the power to set you free. It's humbling because you can't earn salvation. And man, in America, we sure love to feel like, man, we can earn this thing. We can qualify ourselves. We, so many people reject the word of God, not because it's the, the gospel, not because it seems too hard, but often because it seems too easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. We, we want to think, oh, no, I can earn this. I can get to God, and we can't. It's humbling. But check out the reverse of this same truth. It's also liberating. You cannot disqualify yourself from something that you never qualified yourself for in the first place. His promises and his purposes are neither qualified by human efforts nor thwarted by human failures. Amen? Someone can dance to this right now. I'm going to. I don't care. I know how much weakness, how much failure, how much shame I tend to put on myself. And if I think it's humility to cast myself down, it's not. It's humility to lift up my eyes to the mercy of God, which comparatively is more glorious than I would have ever considered without sitting in my weakness. Amen? The Heavenly Father freely chooses to bestow life on some that were once dead. Let's consider the paradox of these two words, Heavenly Father. First, He's heavenly. He's in heaven. He has intel that we lack clearance to view. He has motives that we're not pure enough to process. I've heard people time and time again try to judge God's choices without his perspective. And I'll hear silly questions like this all the time. Well, why didn't God, why why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place, huh? And they'll snicker and act like they're the only person who've ever thought of this question, right? Whether it's a good question or not, I don't know, because it's not our question. It's his question. If something seems, again, arbitrary to you, it doesn't make it arbitrary. Just because you haven't thought something through doesn't mean it hasn't been thought through. It just might, not, it just might mean that it's not your responsibility to think it through fully. We have our responsibility as creatures. He has his responsibility as creator. We are responsible for our choices and our thinking, but not for his. It's not our burden to bear, therefore, making conclusions about who receives salvation and who doesn't. I think we'll be so surprised in heaven that we've made false conclusions about who has faith and who doesn't. That's not our burden to bear. Our burden to bear is, how am I responding to this amazing, out-of-this-world message, the good news of what Jesus has done? How am I responding? Am, Am I responding with faith? Am I responding with so much freedom to proclaim this as a fool before I die, which could be super soon, but I'm free, and I can just just use my gift and my boldness from the Holy Spirit to just tell over and over of this good news and let God bear the fruit of it. It's not our burden to bear anything beyond that. 
our anguish can be rendered to him. And far, far too often we forget that he's in heaven. And we, we make conclusions about the world and about God that lacks necessary perspective. Has anyone ever done this to you? Make conclusions that lack your perspective? As a leader and as a pastor, this has never happened to me, of course. Being facetious. Have you ever made a conclusion and then later regretted, like, oh, shoot, I, after I got a little more info, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'll share an embarrassing story of something that I've done, I mean, hypothetically, years ago, you know, before I was so mature. I was trying to pull out on the freeway. I was trying to pull out on the freeway, and I had the right-of-way, but this car cut me off to get kind of into that lane. And I was so mad, I gave him the look. And another car did it right after them. And I started honking. I'm like, man, let me in. And they wouldn't let me in. So I exerted my will, and I got in there. And so I got around them, and I started pulling up to that first car that, pulled, that, uh, that uh, cut me off. And I saw beyond him a line of cars. And at the front of that line was a car that was shaped differently than most cars. And if you've ever been here, you know exactly where I was. <laughs> I was cutting off a funeral procession. (laughs) I was such a jerk. See, my decisions and conclusions lacked the proper perspective. I was a jerk then, and let me tell you, I so often am a jerk to God. He's in heaven. He has perspective that's infinitely greater than our perspective. He's God, and he's also Father, maybe we don't know a whole lot of things, but we know enough to know beyond a shadow of a doubt with an overwhelming body of evidence that God the Father is good. He's given us his word. That's beyond what any person or morality system can think up. He's created us so mercifully. He's given us skin to feel fresh wind. He's given us an olfactory system to smell flowers and taste fajitas. He's given us life. He's given us minds to unravel mysteries. He, he's made us in his image. We are not essentially biological. Secondarily, maybe biological, but we're made in his image and he shows us his mercy. And beyond anything, he sends us Jesus, who is the perfect image restored of what a man should be, what a leader should be. And in light of him, every other comparison in the world is shattered before Jesus. God the Father is good. And he shows his goodness to us, even as a nation in our worst of moments, when you consider his goodness and our not goodness, we as a nation have enslaved six million black people. We've eradicated native populations. We've killed 60 million babies in the womb in the last half century alone. And yet God continues to show us common grace, uncommon bounty, and merciful providence. He is good to us. And I'm not saying that America is, in essence, just totally bad. But we're not good like God is good. And his goodness to us, despite us, vindicates his character against anyone who would scoff at him for what they think he's obligated to do in the world. 
He's Heavenly Father. He's God. And He's so good. Finally, the Heavenly Father freely chooses to bestow life. This is the last point on some that were once dead. He bestows life. He brings dead people back to life. 1 John 3, how great is this love that the Father has lavished upon us that we, dead rebels, should be called children of God, and so we are. He speaks life to death. He speaks light to darkness. And we have light and darkness inside of us. Verse 15 of of Romans 9, for he says to Moses, I shall have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What's amazing about that is that he has mercy and compassion. He freely chooses to bestow merciful life from the death. Some people scoffingly ask, how could you say that there's only one way to be saved? The more important question contextually is, how can anyone like me be saved in the first place? I know what I've done. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. We should be asking, wait a minute, there's a way? To life for me? He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And it it should just cause our minds to wonder, how could God have mercy on anyone? Let me show you what mercy is. Mercy and grace. Mercy is not receiving the blessing. Mercy is not receiving the punishment that you do deserve. Grace is receiving the blessing you don't deserve. So mercy is not receiving the punishment you do deserve, but grace is receiving the blessing you don't deserve. So how can God give us both of these and still be just? Stay with me. The father sent his son, Jesus, and he lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve any punishment. And yet Jesus freely chose to receive the punishment that we deserved. And he died on the cross as our substitute once and for all. The only reason that we can receive the mercy of not receiving the punishment we do deserve is because Jesus took it from us. Verse two, Paul says, I wish that it would be cut off for them to be grafted in. But that's just what Jesus did for all of us. And he didn't stop there. He could have stopped and kind of given us a new start you know, brought us back from the dead and give us a new chance, but he didn't. He didn't give us a new chance. He gave us new life. He rose from the dead on the third day, and then he began bestowing, granting his same resurrection life on the people that he had just had mercy on. This is overwhelming. It's mercy and it's grace. The Heavenly Father freely chooses to bestow life on some that were once dead. And the question that's left to you is not... uh, trying to sort out the global issues of the world and why God would do this, not that in the world. The question that you are responsible to go over right now is why would God grant you the mercy to be here and to hear this among the remnant he's preserving? What's so beautiful is you're not even responsible for answering that question, but for considering it and rendering all your questions to trusting God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he lifted up the Passover bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he lifted up the Passover cup, lifted up before his disciples and he said, this is my blood that's shed for you 
so that sins may be forgiven. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus didn't just give us something nice to remember. He did something for us. And then he gave us the power to do something in response to remember what he's done. Isn't that amazing? It's better than just thinking about it. Would you stand your feet with me?